This is a five-part seminar. So the theme is reasons for hope. And we're looking for a case for faith in a secular context. And so we're really looking at how we can make the case for faith in a way that's attractive, that makes sense to our friends who maybe come from more of a secular background, or have some basic questions about Christianity. And so it's in five parts, as Israel indicated. Today we're talking about faith and reason. Just what's the relationship between these two? Is faith irrational? Is faith entirely rational? How should we think about these? Tomorrow we'll talk more about science and um, how does faith and science relate? Should we think about these as being intention or do they fit together quite well? And then throughout the week we'll look at history and the problem of evil, the problem of suffering. And Friday we'll really have quite a bit of time for Q&A, but hopefully today as well we'll have a little bit of time for some questions. So if you can't wait till Friday, we'll try and take some of those today as well. So what I want to do is um, to begin setting up the, the whole theme of reasons for hope is I want to look at this word of counsel from Peter. Peter tells us in his uh, epistle, 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter tells us that one of the ways that we honor Christ is by always being prepared to make a defense. The Greek word there is apologia, to make a defense and apologia to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. So that's where our title is coming from, the the reason for the hope that's in you. And so Peter says, one of our Christian duties is you need to prepare yourself, such as by coming to a seminar like this, so that you can make a defense, an apologia, or give a reason for those who ask you for the hope that's in you. Now already there's a lot of things that stand out in this passage. What Peter sees here is he sees people be coming up asking you questions, right? It's not just you going out and and engaging, but actually he envisions people will be coming and asking you questions. And so Peter already has in view Christian community that's mingling with and and interacting with those of other worldviews so that people have an opportunity to ask them questions, right? And so um, my own experience very much is this taking place in the context of a university campus, but this could take place at your workplace, maybe even in your family, um, through service projects, whatever, wherever you come into contact with people, where you're living out your faith and they're beginning to ask you questions, Peter says, think ahead of time so you're ready to give some kind of response to the questions they might ask you. I also appreciate this passage because while Peter emphasizes you should be given a reason, it should appeal to the intellect, he also indicates it's more than just intellectual, it's ultimately a reason for hope. And so what Peter is indicating is that ultimately what we're doing is not just giving a philosophy, but we're providing people with hope. And so what we're going to do in this presentation is appeal to the intellectual questions people might have, but really in such a way that can give people hope. Does that make sense? Okay, excellent. So the purpose of apologetics, apologetics coming from this Greek word apologia, or defense, a defense of the Christian faith, there are two basic purposes of apologetics. The first is to respond to criticism. So the early church, especially by the second century, there were three main criticisms the early church was accused of. The first was atheism. The early Christians, believe it or not, were accused of being atheists because they did not worship the Greek and Roman gods. And so it's, oh, these these must be some kind of atheists, not a very negative connotation. A second one was immorality. Um, There were some Christians who had gone out and done all kinds of immoral acts, and so they had given a bad name to Christianity. But in particular, one of the main charges of immorality against Christianity was cannibalism. Can anyone think why the Christians might have been accused of cannibalism? The Lord's Supper. There was confusion over what the Lord's Supper was, and so they heard that these individuals were coming together, and they're eating the body and the blood of their leader, and so they thought it was some kind of cannibalism. And the last one, a final critique that was very common by the second century was disloyalty to the empire. Why might people be criticizing Christians in this way? Disloyal to the empire. That's right. They talked about this King Jesus, right? And so when they talked about this different kingdom, it sounded like, oh, is this some kind of insurrection? And then when they refused to do various kinds of loyalty oaths to the emperor, it came across as insurrection. Some people thought that they were trying to overthrow the Roman government. And so what happened by the second century is there was a need to respond to these criticisms. So Justin Martyr was one of the first Christian apologists, and he wrote something called the First Apology, where he goes and he addresses this to the emperor of Rome, and he tries to systematically go through each of these critiques and clarify the Christian position. 
He says, yes, that we don't believe in these many gods, but we do believe in the one true God. We are not atheists in that sense. He says, while some Christians have done immoral things, that is not to be representative of Christianity as a whole. In fact, Christians are passionate about caring for the poor, and he gives a defense explaining the Christian position. And he articulates what the Lord's Supper is. It's, we're not literally eating the blood and, and the body of someone. It's not cannibalism, as you might have heard. Rather, we um, do this in memory of the sacrifice of Christ. And then the disloyalty, he stressed that although we can't do some of these oaths, because we cannot worship idols, he indicates that we are loyal to the government for the kingdom we talk of is not a kingdom of man, but a kingdom of heaven. So he makes these distinctions to clarify the Christian position and respond to the criticisms. Make sense? Really fast, I want us to brainstorm. Can you think of any prevailing criticisms or misconceptions of Christianity today? Can you think of any common criticisms or misconceptions of Christianity today? In the first century, it was atheism and immorality and disloyalty to the government. What, what might be a common one today? Someone from a non-Christian background, what might be some of their criticisms or misconceptions of Christianity? Yes? Maybe everyone might be ignorant that, that people think that Christians are blind followers. They're just ignorant of reality and science and all those things. Okay, so um, they may believe that to be a Christian is to be ignorant, and so they, they can't conceive of someone being well-educated and Christian. They think that Christianity is something that's like a superstitious or something of the past, but once you become more educated or more engaged in the sciences, then you naturally grow out of that faith. Okay? Any other common uh, misconceptions or criticisms of Christianity that come they, to mind? They could think that we're self-centered. Self-centered. That we don't reach out, that we're this little group and we don't reach out to other people. Okay, excellent. They see us um, gathering together and they, they maybe get this idea that they're kind of exclusive, they're kind of cliquish, they're kind of self-centered. Very good. You think one more, yeah? Um, in this world of alternative lifestyles and all of that, okay. I think that a lot of times they think Christians are not. Loving. Okay, not loving or not tolerant of other kinds of lifestyles, other ways of living. Very good. And so you could see today there's also a need for us to respond to these types of uh, misconceptions or um, criticisms of Christianity and attempt to clarify just as they did in the second century. And so we're going to try and to begin to do that throughout this week. We won't hit all the topics we engage with. Certainly science will be tomorrow's topic. Um, but a number of them we'll begin to engage with. There's a second purpose of apologetics, and that's to remove intellectual objections to faith. That is, apologetics, the goal of apologetics is not to produce faith in someone. We're told in Romans that faith is a gift from God. So we can't produce faith in someone, but what we're trying to do is we're trying to clear the road of these intellectual objections. Because while someone is in the position that they think, you know, if someone's thinking Christianity is bigoted or Christianity is ignorant or Christianity is, if they have these beliefs, it's tougher for them to respond positively to the Holy Spirit. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to clear the way, remove some of those obstacles so that the Holy Spirit can impart in them the gift of faith. Here's some data I was looking at recently of trends in North America. So in the United States, currently, this was from last December, Young adults between the ages of 18 and 29 were polled on their belief in God. 43% indicate that they have belief in the God of the Bible. Now, there may be lots of different interpretations of what that means, but some basic belief in the God of the Bible. This is the first generation in America where it's less than a majority. So if you look at older age groups, uh, 30 to 40 or 40 to 50 or, or 50 plus, and in these older generations, it's always been above 50%. But now when you look at young adults between the ages of 18 and 29, it's um, dropped to only 43% hold belief in the God of the Bible. 39%, roughly the same number, believe in some kind of higher power. Uh, they wouldn't describe it to be the God of the Bible. They might say some cosmic force or energy or some other kind of higher power. And 16% report belief in no such God or no such higher power. And so what you've seen is, uh, as you look at generations, that in this generation in particular, there's been a rise in those who believe in no God at all or in a vague higher power and a drop in those who believe in the God of the Bible. And so I believe this shows evidence that we really need to, our work's cut out for us, to start clearing the road of some of those intellectual objections. 
right? This generation in particular has a lot of intellectual questions and objections about belief in God. And so the role of apologetics is try to respond to some of those critiques so that the Holy Spirit can give the gift of faith. Make sense? I want to go back to 1 Peter chapter 3, because incredibly, Peter not only tells us that we are to make a defense for the Christian faith, but he also tells us what is to be our attitude and our approach. So looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, he tells us that when you go out and you make a defense for anyone who asks you the reason for the hope that is in you, he says, do it with gentleness, with respect, with a good conscience, and um, so that when you silence those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So he sees Christians as being a group who is gentle, respectful, have a good conscience, and good behavior when they're trying to make an intellectual case for their faith. What I want you to do very quickly is turn to the person or two people next to you, pick one of these four aspects of our approach, and talk about why is it important. Why is it important when we go out and we're seeking to make a defense for our faith? We do it with gentleness. We do it with respect. We do it with good conscience. Or we do it with good behavior. Pick one that stands out to you. Turn to the person next to you. I'll give you about 30 seconds just to talk about it quickly. And then I want to hear from a couple of you. Why is it so important that this is our approach? Okay, I would like to hear from a couple of the groups. In your discussion, what uh, attributes did you feature, what attributes did you focus on, and why is that important? Why is it important that we have a gentleness, respect, a good conscience, and behave ourselves with good behavior? Would someone like to volunteer in a response? I'm gonna, Raham? Great, I'll have you speaking to the mic for the recording. Well, we had discussed about respect and good behavior. Both really those have to do with how we live if we live contrary to what we say, then it will undermine anything we say. Excellent. So oftentimes people are not just looking at what you say, but they're looking at how you live, and they want to see how you live out your life philosophy, how you live out your faith. In respect. If we don't respect someone, it, then and treat them with respect. Mm -hmm. It will, again, underline, undermine anything we're trying to teach. Excellent. So you're highlighting that this attitude and approach is essential to how we go about doing it. Anyone else from your group, something that came out of your discussion? Yes. Um, we talked about gentleness and how we need to realize that people have their beliefs they do for reasons. Mm -hmm. And that they got there, you know, throughout their lives. They were taught that. They, you know, have had certain experiences. And we just need to be gentle realizing that they have reasons for what, what they believe. Absolutely. Deeply held reasons often. It's often tied to things like family or community. And so you don't want to go in there trying to, uh, you know, brazenly disrupt that, right? You want to treat it with respect. One last person. Do you want to share something that came out of your discussion in your group? Mm -hmm. Your voice is gentleness. I mean, if you were, uh, you know, there's a lot of difference in gentleness. Mm -hmm. You know, you can judge a person by, uh, yeah. <laughs> become when they make you feel uncomfortable or something when they talk to you. Yeah. That's what gentleness is, I think. Great. So, so even the way in which we speak, our tone, indicating that we're interested and we're not just trying to overpower them. Excellent. Was there one more? Um, in deep history, Christianity was known for good behavior. But more recently, in the last few centuries, a lot of people try to point out that Christian nations started things like the African slave trade and stuff mm. like that. So I think oftentimes... Skeptic audiences like to point out the fact that Christianity might be responsible for some of modern atrocities. And I think um, people's kind of flags are up for that. Mm -hmm. And so I think to be aware of that and to send, actually, this is a positive example of a Christian. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Excellent. I was just reading this book, uh, Who Is This Man?, which is an account of the history of Christianity. And it explained how in the early centuries... Whenever a plague would come into a community, everyone who was wealthy would leave town until the plague had passed, right? Because they were trying to avoid catching the plague. Except the Christians would develop a habit of staying in the community and ministering to those who were sick and afflicted. Now, many Christians died because of this, right? They would catch the plague. But this example of, no, we're going to stay, we're not just going to flee, and we're going to minister to those in need. Well, people, when they came back, they would ask, why did you do this? Right? And they said, well, it was this kind of Jesus-like thing to do. And it would lead into discussion about who Jesus was. And it became, Christianity became synonymous with caring for the poor 
And so Christians would do things like bury not only their own dead, but bury the dead of other groups as well. And so the Christians became known for this ethic of caring for the oppressed in particular. Excellent. Uh, one similar piece of counsel to Peter's, we're told in Ministry of Healing that the strongest argument in favor of the gospel is a loving and lovable Christian. And so while throughout this series we're going to try and give a number of arguments from history and from science and from reason, I want us to keep in mind that the strongest argument we can ever offer, the strongest apologetic, is a life that is loving and lovable. Okay. What I want us to begin to do now is to begin to wrestle through the relationship between faith and reason. We're mentioning that there's some misconceptions of Christianity today. There's some um, criticisms of Christianity today. Well, here's one such criticism. It comes from Richard Dawkins. He's an outspoken um, uh, evolutionary biologist. He's a well-known atheist. And so here's his critique of faith. He defines faith as follows. He says, faith is the great cop-out. The great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of, ignorance, of evidence. This goes back to what you were saying, how there's this view that Christianity is ignorant, right, or superstitious, that it's uh, going against the evidence, that faith is, I'm going to believe this despite the fact that it's against the evidence, or because of the fact that it's against the evidence, I'm going to believe it despite the fact that I know secretly it's not true. Right? Is this how you would define faith? I wonder if part of the difficulty in our conversations about faith is we just simply have different definitions of faith. Right? You can understand if you're talking to someone, this is their definition. Probably a good place to begin is, well, what do you mean by faith? And let's talk about what faith is. Here's another view on what faith is. From Steps to Christ, page 105, we're told, God never asks us to believe without giving sufficient evidence upon which to base our faith. His existence, his character, the truthfulness of his word are all established by testimony that appeals to our reason, and this testimony is abundant. Yet God has never removed the possibility of doubt. Our faith must rest upon evidence, not demonstration. So we have two different views of faith. The one view is faith is contrary to the evidence, you're believing something despite the evidence. The second view is saying, no, faith, God doesn't ask you to believe something without giving you positive, sufficient evidence that appeals to your mind. Yet, we're reminded, God has never removed the possibility of doubt. He does not give us demonstration, merely evidence. That is, so if you still want to find reason to resist something, you can. So let's see how this plays out. Here I, I've drawn a number of facts about the world. So, so here's one fact, PV equals NRT. You know where that comes from? Yeah, yeah, this is from chemistry, right? It's looking at the relationship between pressure and volume and temperature and its inverse relationship. Um, here, here's one that maybe is more familiar. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Right, this, this is a fact. Uh, here's another fact that some of us are probably familiar with. There's suffering. Right? That's just a fact that we can all agree on. A pi is equal to the ratio of the circumference to the diameter of a circle. Here there's all kinds of different facts, right? Okay, so the question is, is how does faith relate to all these facts about the world? Uh, here's something else. Uh, you shouldn't harm people for fun. Probably all agree on that. Uh, reality exists. There's some external reality. Uh, you have 26 bones in your foot. 26 bones in the human foot. Right there's a little diagram. You count the 26 bones. And, well, maybe some people only have 24 or 25, but typically 20, 26 bones in the foot. So how does faith relate to all these things? Sometimes we want there to be a proof of our Christian faith. And so we want to somehow be able to begin with basic facts like in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue or or this is what pi is, and from there build up an, an irrefutable proof, right? So, so the idea is, okay, if I begin with these facts, I'm trying to see if there's a marker. If I begin with like these facts about, you know, history and, and facts about science and et cetera, and then can I derive uh, an inconclusive proof of God's existence? So sometimes this is what we want. Because then, since everyone agrees on these facts, 
If they follow your reasoning, they have to agree with your conclusion. So sometimes we try this approach. But I want to suggest that the way we should think about faith is actually the opposite of this. It's not that we can have a demonstration of the truth of our faith. Remember that the previous statement said, uh, faith must rest upon evidence, not demonstration. We can't demonstrate it. Rather, what we can do is we can show that the Christian faith is able to make sense of all these things. The Christian faith is able to make sense of the world as a whole. That is, the Christian faith, rather than being built up from all of these facts about reality, rests upon the bottom. It's the foundation. And upon faith, the foundation of faith, we're able to make sense of the world as a whole. So C.S. Lewis, he put it this way. He said, I believe in Christianity as I have believed in the risen sun, not just because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. And so what I'm going to be trying to do, and what we're doing over the course of the seminar, is we're going to show how Christianity makes sense of all these different fields of human knowledge. We're not going to give conclusive proofs that, that you must conclude God exists, but we're going to show that when you adopt the Christian faith, you can begin making sense of things. In particular, what I want us to do is contrast Christianity with naturalism. Naturalism is the view that there's nothing supernatural. No God, no angels, not, nothing supernatural, right? So one definition of naturalism I like quite a bit comes from Carl Sagan in his uh, TV show Cosmos. So never seen Cosmos before. It was a popular show back in the day. Well, Carl Sagan, the physicist, he puts it this way. He says, the cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. Only the material universe, only the natural. So we're going to contrast naturalism with Christianity. The view that rather than merely being the cosmos, that there's a God behind it. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, and all things were made by this word, and without him was not anything made that was made. We're going to contrast these two different views, and we're going to ask which one better explains reality. Does that basic approach make sense? So here, let's give it a try. Here's one question I want us to engage with, and I'm going to have us ask, what best answers this question? Naturalism, the view that there's merely the material, or Christianity? And we're going to see which, which worldview gives us a better way to make sense of reality. So here's the question. I'm going to go through a couple of them, but here's one. Why is there something instead of nothing? What is the Christian response? That's right. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the Christian worldview says everything that began to exist must exist for some reason. And so since the universe came into existence, this account we have is that God brought it into existence. That is an act of divine will. God created the cosmos. Genesis 1.1. So Genesis is our answer to this question of why is there something instead of nothing? How about naturalism? How might it try to answer this question? How can you answer the question, why is there something instead of nothing, under an entirely naturalistic worldview? What are some explanations you've heard? Okay, it just happened. That's not very satisfying. It just happened. Well, we've tried to make this more sophisticated. Here's Stephen Hawking, and he's given a, a response. Let's try to make it more sophisticated. So this is from his book, The Grand Design. He wrote, because there was a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Now, Stephen Hawking's a really smart guy. And so when a really smart guy says something that sounds science-y, sometimes you look at it and you're like, oh, he must know what he's talking about. But I want us to take a second and dissect the language and the logic of this statement. Do you notice anything logically suspicious with this account? Hey, let, me, let me come on over. What's your objection? Where'd gravity come from? Okay, so he says because there was a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. But your objection is, well, the law of gravity is something. And so where did that come from? Yeah. Very good. Any other objections? That's one good objection. Where do the laws themselves come from? If you're saying that there's some laws that brought the universe into existence, well, where do those laws come from? Okay, any other objections to this statement? 
Giuseppe says that the universe can create itself uh -huh. because what's creating it if it doesn't exist yet? Very good. Yeah, you, there seems to be a paradox here. How does something create itself? Because to create something means to bring it into existence, but to bring it into existence, you must already exist. So how can you possibly create yourself? There seems to be a problem there. Any, any last objections? Any other objections you can think of here? Here's one more. What's doing the creating? It says, the laws such as gravity. A problem here is that laws, mathematical laws, scientific laws, are laws of nature, are descriptive, not creative. What I mean by that is our mathematical laws describe the universe, they describe how the universe operates, but it doesn't bring about anything in the universe. So think of it this way, bring, take out your wallet if you have one, and you know, you could write down a little equation that describes how much money you have in your wallet. Maybe you have like a 20, uh, and so you have like 20, and maybe you have like a 10, so it's like 20 plus 10, maybe you have a couple ones, like plus two. And so you're like, ah, here, here I can describe it. I have $32, right? Yes, 32. But if you suddenly added a plus 100, would 100 extra dollars pop into your wallet? Right, laws have no creative power. And so why we have mathematical descriptions like the law of gravity that might describe the world around us, it can't possibly create that world. Does the distinction make sense? So simply by appealing to a law, while well, you, you haven't answered the question where the law itself has come from, you haven't answered the question how the universe is creating itself, but it doesn't seem like a law has any creative power in it. And so this seems like a very unsatisfactory response. So I would suggest that just beginning to analyze the question of why is there something instead of nothing, the Christian worldview has more sense-making power than naturalism. Let's engage with another question. And in the Q&A, you might, there have been rebuttals that goes back and forth. You might bring some of those up, and we can talk about it more in Q&A. But let's move on to one more question. Why should we trust our minds? Why should you trust your thought? And we're talking about reason, the relationship between faith and reason. Why should we trust our reason? So in the Christian worldview, why should we trust human minds? Yes. Because we have a true free will as opposed to predetermined laws and events that just play out. Okay, so our thoughts are not arbitrary. Our thoughts are not just the consequence of some laws. But we actually have, have a mind, an intellect. This goes back. Where do we see this in the Bible? Where does this idea first show up? How does God create humanity? Yeah, in Genesis 1, God creates humanity in his image. And so God creates humanity rational. God creates humanity and says things to humanity like in Isaiah, let us reason together, right? And so you see, God has endowed humanity with a mind that can think about and reason and reason about the world around us. So Christianity gives an account for this. How about naturalism? Well, under naturalism, where do our minds come from? Well, yeah, there's a story. There's a story. They started out of nothing. Somehow from nothing, we got something. And then over the course of time, there was some unguided process that, that led this nothing to, to assemble into basic life that then through evolutionary pressure became more complicated and, and eventually we end up with the human mind through a process of survival of the fittest. But the problem is, is if our minds were merely created to survive, why should we trust them to arrive at statements of truth? So Darwin himself recognized this problem. Here's a statement from Charles Darwin. He accounts that, he says, with me, the horrid doubt always arises. Rather, the convictions of man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of lower animals, are of any value or uh, are at all trustworthy. Would anyone trust in the convictions of a monkey's mind if there are any convictions in such a mind? And so Charles Darwin is recognized and says, you know, I have this promise presented me because I've been using my mind to come up with this description of where he came from, but the description of where he came from seems to undermine the credibility of my mind. You see that? It's not just Darwin. Francis Crick has pointed this out, the co-discoverer of the DNA. Um, he, he indicated, he says... Why should we expect our minds, which were developed in the naturalistic account merely to survive, 
to be able to lead us to scientific truth, right? If you are made merely to survive, to, to get food and, and recreate and pass on your genetics, why should we expect a mind to tell us anything true about the universe, about the cosmos, any grand questions at all? Why would we trust the credibility of our mind? So it seems here, while Christianity gives us a robust account that elevates what it means to be human, as someone made in the image of God with an intellect, naturalism threatens that image. Naturalism seems to undermine our reliability in our own mind. One more question I want us to think about. We're looking at these basic questions and asking what makes sense of these. So here's another one. Whence comes morality? What is the basis for morality? For an objective good and an objective evil. Well, what did Christianity say? God is the standard of morality. Yes, the, within, God is the ultimate good. So in the nature of God, you have what is good um, present, and then God can de delineate between the good and the evil. Very good. So Christianity, we have this objective standard in the person, in the very nature of God himself. And so Christianity grounds morality in something that's transcendent, something beyond just mere human opinion. How about naturalism? Well, back in the 18th century, the German philosopher Nietzsche recognized that when we move from the Christian belief, there were going to be consequences. Has anyone heard of Nietzsche before? He's the German philosopher who said, God is dead. He's not claiming to have killed God. He's reflecting on the fact that in Western philosophy, we're doing away with the idea of God. And he says, there's going to be some consequences of that. So look at Nietzsche's argument. He argues in Twilight of the Idols. He says, when one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls the right to Christian morality from under one's feet. Christianity is a system, a whole view of things thought out together. By breaking one main concept of it, the faith in God, one breaks the whole. Nothing remains in one's hands. And so Nietzsche anticipated this era of nihilism. He anticipated a time would come when we would not regard anything as good or evil. It would be beyond the notions of good and evil. And there would be no absolute morality left because we've given up this faith in God. Now, since Nietzsche, there have been a lot of attempts to ground morality in something other than God. Can anyone think of some, something you've heard of? What's the basis of morality? Have you heard of any? What, what have you heard of? Okay. Um, that culture determines morality. Okay, so it's your culture. Okay. The problem here is this is an entirely relativistic morality, right? What is right in my culture might be wrong in your culture. I mean, what would have happened if the Nazis had won and their culture had prevailed? Would suddenly what they thought was right would become right? Right? We want to resist this. We have some sense that, no, there are some things that are good. I mean, after all, we believe in progress. We believe that when we abolish slavery, we made progress as a society, right? But if every culture is equivalent and whatever every culture does, it's right for them or right for us, how can we denounce slavery as evil? That was their culture, and this is just our culture, right? But we actually believe in progress. But in order for there to be cultural progress, in order for society to progress, there must be some objective standard to measure it against, right? So what are some other things we've heard of? What's the basis? What's the basis for an objective morality? Uh -huh. But the idea that what about people who we recognize as heroes who fought against the culture, like Oscar Schindler, or what uh -huh. about Martin Luther King Jr., who we recognize as people who did heroic work, but they were operating against their culture. Excellent. So we recognize when we look throughout history and you see individuals like the abolitionist or we, you see individuals like, like Martin Luther King or others who stand up, we're saying, hey, they're actually appealing to some higher good, something higher than their culture, Right. Okay, so what's another attempt? Has anyone think of another attempt of grounding morality in something other than the divine? Human decency. Human decency. You want to say a little bit more about that, unpack that? What, how does that get expressed? I think a lot of people probably just don't think about it. They just say, well, that's just, that's just obviously what I want people to do to me, so that's what I do. Uh -huh. So it's just kind of based on your own kind of thought on it. Uh-huh. Uh, I guess the problem here would be the things that we consider now to be decent, or, well, 500 years ago, we had a very different basis of what we thought was decent, right? So well, what are we to, to measure these subjective feelings against, right? We can continue to go through. You have one more you want to think about? Yeah? 
I was wondering if uh, Isaac Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics would be ah. would fit into that philosophy. Uh huh. Uh huh. Oh, this is really interesting because as we're trying to develop AI, artificial intelligence, we're trying to think about how do we program them and can we program some kind of morality into artificial intelligence? And so this is the kind of a live discussion right now of what, how do we program morality into something, right? You know, this is this is fascinating. Yeah, the, the problem is, is it's really tough to come up with a moral system, right, that's expressing something more than mere sentiment, expressing something more than mere opinion, right? We have a feeling about morality that it's not the same as like saying, I like ice cream, right? When I say that murder is wrong, I'm not simply expressing my sentiment or my opinion, I'm making some objective statement, some transcendent statement. And so what grounds that? And if all we have is chemicals, if all the universe is is stuff, it's really tough to see where these objective moral truths can reside. Does that make sense? Okay, great. So we've gone through now a number of aspects about the world, and throughout this week we'll go through more, look at history and science. We're, we're comparing naturalism and Christianity, and it's like, Christianity makes sense of this. Well, naturalism really struggles too. What I wanna do now to wrap up is look at a number of objections to the Christian faith. And so we're gonna look at three objections to Christianity and see, well, how might Christianity respond to this? So before we saw three positive arguments, Christianity can appeal to the fact that we're here, that there's a universe, that there's something rather than nothing. We can appeal to the fact that we have this moral sense about the world. And we can also appeal to this fact that, that we have minds and reasoning that we can trust. But what are some possible objections to Christianity? So I'm going to name three, but then I'm going to leave open some time for questions and answers. So maybe you have some others that come to mind as well. Here's one. Isn't faith irrational since you can't prove that God exists? Here, I've said that uh, instead of trying to give a demonstration that God exists, we're just saying that Christianity makes sense of the world as a whole. But doesn't that make it irrational since we can't provide a proof that God exists? Have you ever heard anyone say something like this? Well, you can't prove it, or you can't prove God exists, or I won't believe until you prove it, or something like this? Okay. What seems to be going on here is again a misunderstanding of, of what proof is and, and how it operates in, in, in knowledge. So, so I really like Blaise Pascal on this. Blaise Pascal is a mathematician. Um, he was also a philosopher, a theologian, apologist. And I really like his insight here. He argues that reason's last step, the last step of reason, is to recognize there are an infinite number of things which are beyond it. And he says it is merely feeble if it does not go as far as to realize that. Then he goes on to argue if natural things are beyond it, what are we to say about supernatural things? If you want to read up about this a little bit more, here's a really good book I'm going to recommend. It's called The Outer Limits of Reason, uh, What Science, Mathematics, and Logic Cannot Tell Us. And what this book does is it looks into uh, just logic and, and mathematics and science and these really fun puzzles and logic puzzles and interesting mathematical results from the last century that show us that there are inherent limits to human knowledge. And so Blaise Pascal would say, if there's a hand that limits to human knowledge and mathematics and about the natural world, shouldn't we expect the same about the supernatural world as well, about our knowledge of God? So let me give you some, some examples of things that reason can't demonstrate. One of them is the question that we asked before of why should we trust human reason? Reason can never give you an answer for this. Why not? Yes, if you were to reason to an answer for why you should trust reason, it would become circular, right? So you just have to take this on a foundational level that, that you should trust reason, because if you try and use reason to argue for why you should trust reason, it becomes a circular argument. The logic undercut you're using reason to, tr to argue why you should trust reason. It's like asking someone, how do I know you're reliable? And he says, well, because I say so. Right? It's how can you ask reason to be reliable? Well, you can't trust reason to tell you. Here's another one. Why do we believe an external universe exists? Now, this seems kind of silly. Of course, there's a universe out here, right? Like, like look at all this stuff. Like, obviously, there's a universe. But, but how do we know we're not just, like, in some kind of mind or in some kind of dream? How do we know we're not in the matrix, to use a more contemporary analogy, or that we're not in some kind of simulation? This recently got a, a lot of press. Elon Musk alluded to this possibility that, that maybe we're in some kind of simulated universe. 
Like, you know, it's like you're just a mine in, in, trapped in some computer program or something. So everything's simulated. Well, how could you ever know for certain? Because any experiment you might do, you might just have a simulated result, right? These are fundamental questions that your reason can't differentiate. And yet, does anyone here really reject that you live in a universe? Right? Does anyone really reject that you can trust your reason? Here's one more. Why should you believe in the existence of other minds? You only ever experience your own mind. How do you know all these other people have minds? Maybe they're really advanced robots, right? How do we know they actually have minds? But what I'm trying to demonstrate is that there are certain questions human reason can't get to because they're at the very foundation of knowledge. They're the very bottom of it all. And I want to suggest that belief in God is like this. It's such a foundational matter, you can't demonstrate it based upon something else, but you, just like human reason, while well, I trust my human reasons because it's really useful and makes sense of the world, I believe there's a world around me because it's a really useful belief, and, and I go day by day and it makes sense of things, and I believe you have a mind because how else would it make sense of reality? That's how we should think about belief in God. We don't demonstrate it from other simpler beliefs, rather we show that it rests at the bottom of all beliefs. It makes sense of all these other beliefs. Does that make sense? Rather than build up to belief in God, we let belief in God live at the bottom and show how it makes sense of everything else. Okay, second objection. Maybe you've heard this one. Well, why doesn't God make his, his existence more obvious? You know, maybe you could reflect upon it and find some evidence for God's existence, but why isn't it really obvious? So some have said things like, you know, I'm not gonna believe until God rearranges the stars in the sky and spells out, I exist or something, right? Or why doesn't God like, like show up in the clouds and declare, I exist, you should believe in me. Why doesn't God make his existence more obvious? Because you don't believe the simple life. Yeah? If you don't believe the simple life, the simple explanation, no matter what God does, it's still not going to be enough. Good. So if someone was to see God show up in the clouds, they could say, well, I must have just gone crazy or something. They could still find an excuse. Yeah. If they see the, the stars rearranged, they might be like, oh, there must be some advanced alien civilization out there that's rearranging the planets or rearranging the stars. If we've already, if we've already developed a, uh, a mindset that says that he doesn't, then we're going to find a, try to find a naturalistic way to explain everything he does. Yeah. I must be dreaming. I must be crazy. I, I had some bad pizza last night so or not, something. You're not beginning with evidence. You're beginning with a conclusion. Okay. Very good. Anyone else have thoughts on why doesn't God make his existence more obvious? I wrestled with this question because I have friends who, who there seems like they want to believe, but, but they, they've just really wrestled with it a lot. I'm like, why doesn't God just show up and, and make it utterly obvious to everyone? Well, I suppose there is really good evidence. The fact that we're here, the, the fact that we're alive, the fact that there's a universe at all, the fact that we can think and ask these questions, that's hinting at something, but, but why is it not even more obvious? Why is it not inescapably obvious that you would always have to confess? Yeah. One more person. I've thought about this question as well. Yeah. And one of the things for me that is important with it is if he did that, yeah. in a sense, he would be taking away their free will to choose because yeah. if it would basically be like, forcing people, logically forcing people to believe. Mm, mm. So maybe there's some free will aspect going on there. Well, as I wrestled with this question, I think these are great responses. There was a psalm I found that I found really helpful. It's Psalm 132. It's, a, it's a David's psalm, David's prayer. And for David, the presence of God was utterly obvious. He, he wrote in this psalm that he can't escape from it. He says, God, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You acquaint with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from you, Spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If you're familiar with the psalm, it continues to talk about how if I go into heaven, you're there. If I go into the abyss, you're there. If I go out to the sea, even there in the midst of the sea, you are there. So for David, he had this sense that God is, is present and inescapable. And he couldn't escape 
the presence of God. So for David, he was experiencing the reality of God's presence. And so I was wondering, why isn't this true for everyone? Why doesn't everyone, from the moment that they're born, have this inescapable sense that, that God knows what they're thinking, and God, God is always present, and you cannot escape from his presence? And as I thought about it, I realized, for David, when he sang this, he said, this is a wonderful thought, right? This is too wonderful. But think about someone who is not in right relationship with God. Think about someone whose heart is hostile with God. What would their response be to a constant life of never being able to escape the, the overwhelming presence of God? Always knowing that God knows their every thought. What are some of the words they might use to describe God? Oppressive, dictator, terrifying, controlling, right? Actually, if you, if you look at the language that many of these new atheists use, like Richard um, Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, they've used this language like, God is a dictator, God is a control freak. How much more people use this language if every moment of every day they have the inescapable sense of God's presence? I wonder if at times God might mask his presence from people because God's ultimate goal isn't merely to get people to believe in him. That is, God doesn't want people to believe in him and be terrified. God doesn't want people to believe in him and think he's some kind of control freak. What is God's ultimate goal? To be in loving relationship. So check out the statement from the Great Controversy. God does not force the will or judgment of any. He takes no pleasure in a slavish obedience. And think of what that would be if everyone constantly knew there was an all-powerful entity who could know their every thought and was ever-present. For many, it would result in some kind of slavish obedience, but God takes no pleasure in it. The statement goes on. He desires that the creatures of his hands shall love him because he is worthy of love. He would have them obey him because they have an intelligent appreciation of his wisdom, justice, and benevolence. Yes, comments? Yeah, I just think it's interesting that, you know, from what we understand of how things were in heaven before the fall, yeah. it was actually very similar in, in a sense yeah. because they were, even though they were in God's direct presence, you know, in his throne room, mm -hmm. so to speak, outside of that immediate presence, mm -hmm. Lucifer went around telling tales about him mm -hmm. and God allowed it. And so even there, it wasn't a thing where like God was breathing down their necks. Mm -hmm, you see mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of interesting. And even one who was in the very presence of God was able to develop this sentiment of rebellion towards God. Yeah, it seems like what's going on is God has ordered the universe in such a way, not so that everyone would be totally convinced of his existence, but in order to optimize the opportunities to bring people into loving relationship with him. And sometimes that means God allows a little bit of distance right? God is more trying to woo people to him rather than overpower them or overwhelm them with a show of force. Excellent. So one last objection I have us look at. We're all atheists towards Zeus and Poseidon and thousands of other gods, the objection goes. Why not just take it one step further and reject all gods? The idea is you're already an atheist about Zeus, you don't believe in Zeus, about Poseidon. Why not just take it one step further and reject all gods? Do you ever have an objection kind of similar to this? It's pretty common on internet forums. How would you respond to an objection like this? Yeah. It's good. Um, I was just going to say, because as Christians, it's, it's kind of an obvious answer. Is okay. that we, don't, we would just say we believe in all gods, but there's just one. Okay, okay. <laughs> good. We believe in all the gods that exist, and that happens to be right. one. Yeah, yeah, the one true God. Okay, that's, that's good. Um, but, but why not reject this God just like you re reject the notion or the idea of these other gods? Yeah. You have to have some alternative. Okay. And that requires great faith. Okay. So uh, the, the, the position of believing in no gods requires a lot of faith, you're saying. Okay. Any other any other comments? Yeah. I think specifically because the God of Christianity revealed Himself in space, time, and history in a uni uh. in a unique way, especially through the through the person of Jesus Christ. So you have to, 
as a historian, yeah. you have to start to wrestle with those with those historical facts. Uh-huh. So that raises a different thing that Zeus and Poseidon there's no there's no accounts that Zeus or Poseidon necessarily came into our world in human flesh uh-huh. at a traceable time in history. Uh-huh. And so for us, you're saying that uh, we see there's more evidence for the Christian God. And we look at, and we'll, as will be this week, we'll be looking at one of the tasks for us this week. We'd look at some of the evidence that differentiates the Christian God from these other gods, in particular in the person of Jesus Christ. Yeah. That, that's exactly what I was going to mm-hmm. say. Um, back to Mrs. White's quote about evidences. So mm-hmm. I don't see any evidences with the other ones. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. That, that for us, we have an intellectual faith. And so we're looking for evidences, and there's just not very satisfying evidence that there was a Poseidon or that there was a Zeus. We'll go into this further tomorrow and Wednesday and into Thursday and the end of the week. But I think there's one other aspect of this question. Because it's what it seems to be doing is, is suggesting that atheism is like the default or the preferred position, that, that you should be an atheist towards everything. This is kind of the preferred position. And so if you've already been an atheist towards these thousands of gods, you really should just take it one step further. But you know, this logic doesn't really hold up. Who here is married? Okay, so if you're married, you're single with respect to thousands of women. You're not married to these millions of women out there. Why don't you just take it one step further and just be a bachelor? Right? That's kind of the logic here, right? If you've chosen not to be married to these other millions of women, why not just take it one step further? Or if you're doing like a problem on some exam, it's like, well, you know, those hundred answers are not the correct answer. Why not just take it one step further and leave it blank and say that there is no answer? Right? This logic doesn't really hold up. So I, I don't think that you can argue that atheism is somehow the default, the preferred position, where oftentimes in life, there is just one true distinct answer, one true person that we choose to be in relationship with, right? And so I, I think that there's something going on in the question where it's trying to present atheism as the preferred position when in fact, many times in life, that is not, you, you know, simply choosing not to play the game or to opt out entirely is not a preferred position. Great. Well, that's it for now. What I want to do is open it up. We have a few minutes left to um, any comments or questions and answers you might have. And so I'm just going to leave it open for a few minutes for any um, comments or questions, and we can have a little bit of discussion now. Yeah, this is just a question for you or I guess open to whoever. Mm-hmm. Um, Going back to the issue of morality mm-hmm. being objective or subjective, whatnot, um, how would you respond to someone, for example, who, like, if you pose a question to them, um, why is it wrong, you know, is it objectively wrong to abuse children for fun, yep. mm-hmm. right? Something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, generally, the answer you mm-hmm. get is, Everybody knows it's wrong. Mm-hmm. What if someone says, well, it's not objectively wrong. Mm-hmm. I just feel like it is. And you might. But if someone doesn't, then it's not objectively wrong. Okay. So I think this, this is good. You bring, there's a couple of possible... Uh, I wasn't sure where you're going to take that. But you're saying that you claim that there are some things objectively wrong. You give an example like abusing children. And they say, well, that's your opinion, but I disagree. Right? <laughs> well, don't let your kids near this person, first of all. <laughs> right? but, but this is just a really difficult position to defend. Right? Like, like how is this person possibly going to defend the position that sometimes it's permissible to, to torture children? That's, that's a really difficult position to defend. And, you know, there used to be a time where I would try to come up with arguments for why there's an objective morality. But where I'm at now is simply that people generally have such an overwhelming sense that this is wrong, that that any kind of argument you might be able to give against it, any kind of argument you might try and give that morality is subjective, is going to rely upon premises that are less obviously true than the obvious truth that you shouldn't torture children. Like, it's so self-evident, right, that any kind of argument someone might try and bring against it is going to boil down to weaker claims than what is so obviously true, that you shouldn't torture children. And so I'm happy just to let that obvious truth sink in. Right? I don't think that someone can honestly defend, you know, it's okay to torture children. It's okay to do this, you know, horrific act. I don't think anyone truly holds that. 
Now, some people might say that they do, but they certainly don't live it out, right? Like, like you might say that you do, but, but who actually lives their life on a basis that this is just my opinion and if it's okay with you, I'm perfectly fine with you doing it, right? No one, no one actually lives their life that way. Or hopefully, you know, there may be some extreme cases. And, and so this is something where I was saying that we need God as a basis for morality. I'm not claiming that atheists cannot be moral. I'm actually, I don't think it's true at all. There are many atheists who live a very moral life, you know, and put us to shame with the great works that they do. But you ask, why are you living your life this way? And, and the, what they're doing is actually they're living out an ethic that the atheism does not support. That's the claim. Yeah. And so you actually appeal to these instincts that are universal, that people recognize. Perhaps there are some fringe cases where there are, you know, some deeply disturbed people who don't. But, but overall, humanity recognizes you shouldn't torture children. Yeah, I don't, I, think, I, don't, I don't feel a burden to, to make an argument for that. I think an immediate response to that without trying to be at all abrasive about it is you can say, well, does that apply to all children? Does that apply to your children? Yeah, I mean, you know, you don't want to say it that way, but I think people start to sense that when it comes close to their camp, oh, wait, hold up a second. You know? yeah. But what's the source of immorality? Where did that... Why is it wrong? That's right. I think that's the question. I think people generally agree that it is. But then what we can come along and do is begin questioning and pointing out, well, what is the basis of that? And it's very hard on naturalism for them to justify the level of disgust at that that they have, right? God, as I understand it, yep. God is the only one that can authorize immorality. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, tell that it's wrong. Yeah. Can, can any other belief come up with that same idea? Yeah, so one common response is you can give some story of how in naturalism we evolved these moral instincts. In order for us to get along in tribes and communities, we had to develop the sense of altruism. And so we can talk about morality being evolved. But the problem with that is it's like we evolved morality just like how we evolved to have five fingers. If we rewind the story and run it again, we might have ended up with six fingers or four fingers or you know, no fingers at all, right? And so what you're saying is morality is accidental. And so you could imagine that in some other way that evolution could have gone, you may have ended up with a, a species where it was good to torture children or whatever. And, and I think that anyone, when they reflect on this, would realize, no, my sense of what is truly wrong here is deeper than just accidental morality. I believe that in any circumstance, in, no matter the evolutionary, um, how it may have unfolded in their worldview, that this still would be wrong. Yeah. Comment. I think it's interesting that you're saying, you know, like, you're talking about how sometimes this whole concept goes against the exact thought of atheism. Mm. Because you look at the idea of, you know, like, we're moral because we're trying to help each other. You know, we have this altruistic attitude mm -hmm. of, you know, being good to people. But that goes totally contrary to the idea of evolution because mm -hmm. evolution's whole basis is the survival of the fittest. Mm -hmm. And the survival of the fittest has no selflessness. It's, you know, what can I advance myself or what mm -hmm. can I do to become the top? Because if the whole idea of evolution was all about looking out for other people, you know, if the weak link is the one you're always looking out for, then the whole tribe would die, you know? So you, you're mm -hmm. always defending yourself. So the whole idea of, of um, morality coming, you know, as an idea to help others is not even in the thought of evolution. <laughs> um, I had a, a, a question, too, a little bit similar to, to the other one that I mm -hmm. asked, but maybe to make it broader... Um, you know, with the thing that you were talking about of like having a nihilistic worldview, mm, yeah. if if someone has that worldview where they basically say there's no, there is no such thing as objective morality, because mm, that's no basically good, no that, evil, that, no meaning, no that's the ultimate conclusion mm -hmm. of yeah, yeah. of evolution. Mm. Um, if they have that, what if they hold to that worldview and at the same time they say, but the the morality that we have, what we live by, is basically just for preservation or, or culture or mm -hmm. natural, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. reasons. Mm -hmm. But why should we, right? So, so you can argue that like, I, we just invented this morality so that we get along, right? 
but there's no binding force on anyone to actually follow it, right? Like if someone gets in a position of power and they get elected to be the leader of some state, why should they still follow this morality, right? Why, what, what binding force the morality have on them if we just made it up for convenience, right? It's really tough to see how a morality of convenience can have any force upon people, right? You can try and enforce it with laws and with police forces and et cetera, but the moment that someone has power enough to avoid that, why would they still continue to serve others instead of being self-interested, right? Um, so there's this quote I wanted to share, and uh, maybe this is a good time to do it. Uh, this comes from Viktor Frankl. Uh, so Fra Frankl was a Holocaust survivor, and he reflects upon the significance of, ultimately, the stories we tell of what it means to be human. Right? Christianity tells a story of how we're, we're humans made in the image of God, we're moral creatures, that every individual has dignity and worth. It, no matter what, what value they add to society, no matter you know, how smart they are, how good looking they are, no matter any of these things, every individual has inherent worth. And so when we lose that story, Viktor Frankl points out that there are consequences. So let me share with you a statement from him. He says, if we present man with a concept of man, which is not true, we may well corrupt him. When we present him as a automation of reflexes, as a mind machine, as a bundle of instincts, as a pawn of drives and reactions, as a mere product of instincts, heredity, and environment, we feed the despair to which man is in any case already prone. He goes on to note, I became acquainted with the last stages of corruption in my second concentration camp in Auschwitz. The gas chambers of Auschwitz were the ultimate consequences of the theory that man is nothing but the, but the product of heredity and environment, or as the Nazis like to say, of blood and soil. And so what he's pointing out is these are not just intellectual debates, but that the story we present of what it means to be human actually has consequences that get lived out. And he's saying, I, I faced that, that when individuals saw me not as someone of dignity, but as simply a... a Mach, uh, mind machine, that's something that can be acted upon in any which way, that this ultimately led to Auschwitz, right? This was his experience. And so I believe these discussions have wide-reaching consequences. Is there one or two last comments that you want to add or questions? Or if not, we'll wrap up and continue tomorrow. Great, so to... Just yeah. One last just clarification. I was just wondering... Yeah. Um, for... The idea, it's, it's a really interesting approach that you're saying that it's basically the, the belief, the faith, is one of the fundamental That's starting right. points that can't be, you can't go back from that or beyond that. Um, I was just wondering if you could clarify that yep. difference between that and like pre-suppositional yep. apologetic yep. Mm -hmm. view. Yeah, that's good. So um, there's uh, one approach to apologetics called presuppositionalism, where you presuppose the truth of Christianity. And whenever, someone, whenever you talk with someone, um, you try and point out um, just errors in their worldview and how you need Christianity to be coherent, essentially. Um, I guess it's similar to this in some ways, but I'm not going to take such a strong case. I think we can meet people on the ground a little bit. Right, so Paul demonstrates this in Acts when he goes to Mars Hill. When Paul goes and he's engaging with these Epicurean philosophers, he's quoting from their own poets. He's not just like limiting himself to the Christian worldview. He's engaging with their worldview. But as he engages with his worldview, he shows how within their worldview, there were signposts that pointed to a creator God. And so he goes through and he quotes from these poems about Zeus. And there was a poem about Zeus he quotes from that says, Zeus is the creator of all life. And then he goes back and he argues, so why are you worshiping idols? So he does this really interesting argument where he begins with their own worldview and uses that to then serve as signposts or directions pointing to Christianity. And so I think sometimes we, we do need to be able to engage with other people's worldviews as well. And so I, I don't want to argue that we need to limit ourselves to only always talking from within the Christian worldview. But what I'm trying to say is we should never expect to have a step-by-step -step proof that God exists. Rather, what we're showing is, hey, there's stuff that you value about the world. You value morality. You value making sense of the world. You value your mind. When Christianity comes along, it gets to make sense of these things. And so we get to affirm the things people already value and show how Christianity brings all these things into focus and allows them to fit together in a really beautiful and attractive way. And so that's what we've been trying to be doing this week, is showing tomorrow about science. 
you know, we value the scientific enterprise. We talk about the history of science some and how Christianity was actually the force that powered science. And in Christianity, this assumption that we can make sense of the universe was powered by belief in God. And so I hope to show that, that what we're actually doing is coming to the marketplace of ideas and showing how these things you care about and value, morality, justice, truth, rationality, Christianity is able to hold these all up from the bottom. Does that make sense? Yeah. Great. Awesome. Well, let's wrap up there. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we can continue tomorrow. Yeah, Father God, as we um, have spent this last hour just looking at the Christian faith, I'm just reminded of the, the word of counsel we have at the beginning, that the strongest argument is ultimately not just a, a rational case, but it's a loving and lovable Christian. And so I just pray as we go throughout this week, you might continue to, yes, think deeply about a faith, yes, think about how we communicate with others, but ultimately think about how we can live it out in love. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org. Dot audioverse.org.